Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I would really appreciate if you could hit that like button, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes and leave us a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here today. Grant, it's great to see you, my man. It's great to be here, Alex. Absolutely. Thanks so much. So for Grant, for those people out there that don't know much about you, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and some of your career highlights. Absolutely. So Grant Coleman, I've now worked in the SaaS space for 13 years this year. In that time, I've worked for a small company, which was 10 million in revenue, taking it from 2 million to 10 million in revenue in ZMags, a, a Danish startup. After seven years of doing that, I then joined a company called Imarsis, run that with for five years. I went from running a small region within the, the company to running the global operation CRO. And then we were acquired by SAP. And then for SAP, I've been there since January this year. So they're through acquisition where I'm running CX for the EMEA North region. Awesome. It's a great run. Looking forward to diving deep. Before we get there, though, Grant, there's a piece of that we missed out, which is your time at Mercedes, actually, yeah. right? I've done my homework and I want to go right back to there. So talk to us about your start in your career, actually being at Mercedes-Benz, what you learned from that and what that taught you. Yeah, so I worked for my local Mercedes-Benz dealership for five years. And I, I did that after deciding I went to university for like three months, quit university, needed to get a proper job, ended up at Mercedes-Benz, always had a passion for cars. And where I live, grew up in West London in Hounslow, we have the Great West Road, which for anyone that knows it, is just car dealership after car dealership after car dealership. My mother already worked at Mercedes-Benz. She put a good word in for me. Started on the parts counter, growing my way into service management roles. So I was the guy wearing a bad suit who you'd bring your car to when it needed a service, call you with the bad news and all the extras that it needs, and managing what was a really, it was a really busy job. Like you were seeing somewhere between 20 and 25 different customers a day, managing their expectations, dealing with highly demanding people with what is effectively a painful thing to do. No one likes, enjoys taking their car for a service. So running that and then dealing with my the team of mechanics that I was responsible for and their efficiency was kind of my first proper job. Before that, it was very much just jobs I did around school and tiny stuff, relevant. Absolutely, right. And you, you were doing this for five years. So in that, I could see some of the lessons that potentially have helped you throughout the latter part of your career. But there was a moment that you said, actually, enough of this time to transition, right? So walk us into that fifth year. What happened and why did you transition? So, I mean, the primary reason, in all honesty, was simply debt. So me trying to keep up with my friends going out all the time, I got to the position where trying to sustain my the lifestyle I was trying to live with the wages I was earning at Mercedes-Benz, which were very finite, wasn't working out. So I needed to get myself a job, which would help me, first of all, get out of debt because I'd accumulated so much debt over that period of time. So rather than working for the cash machine, I thought, let's go and do this. So what I decided to do was take a job in sales. I saw this advert in the paper. We still use the newspaper to get a job back then. And I saw a job that you could earn, had 20,000 a month earning potential, 20,000 pounds a month. I was like, well, let's go check that out. And when I inquired more, it was about a job selling investment property in Dubai from an office in Guildford, which is great. So when I got there, my first job in sales, 30 guys, one girl, all making somewhere between 250 and $300 a day, hardcore sales pitching, just here's a list of numbers. This is your list. Call them. My job was to convince somebody to get on an airplane 
go to Dubai and they would be met by another sales rep over there that would show them the development. And indeed, if somebody then actually brought the development, 10% of the purchase price came to the sales rep. So you could get seriously good money. Anyway, after three months, that whole company got shut down. So what I didn't realize, and none of us did, was that was pretty much a scam company selling sand in the desert. And that was probably a very low point in my career. So that transition from Mercedes-Benz, very steady, very stable, thinking, right, let's go do something, and then finding myself redundant in 2008 or early 2009 doing a job in sales. So that was my first job in sales. Never had a chance to be successful in it. But now I'm also unemployed in a global crisis. It was the financial crisis, the crash. There was no way to get back into the motor trade. That was the first place I tried to get back into. So then I was like, well, what am I going to do? The only job I could easily get was as an estate agent. So then I flipped to become an estate agent in Clapham, South London. So very interestingly there, started the first weekend, preparing for your first weekend, which is when you're really predominantly busy as an estate agent. I had a call from a Canadian guy who said, I'm coming over with my wife. We want to see everything you have in the area with two bedrooms on your books in the Abbeville Road area. So we had about six or seven properties on the books at the time. And I ended up spending something like three to four hours with the guy and his wife on Saturday, showing them everything I had with two bedrooms. The guy's name was Shane Bauk. Turns out he was coming over to London to set up a software company or take over the management of a software company, Danish software startup. And at the end of that time with him, he offered me a job at a time where I needed needed jobs. This is the first weekend that I'm doing this job as an estate agent, which paid almost nothing. It was like 12 grand basic. Everything was commission based. So then at the end of that first weekend of being offered a job by this Canadian guy in this SaaS, never knew what SaaS was, didn't know what it meant, software company in an office in, in, in Croydon, which I gladly took and then changed my life dramatically from that point on. So that was my first foray into SaaS. Wow, it's pretty unbelievable. I feel like there's a, a mixture of many different things, a, a, an element of luck. There was down times, good times. I want to double tap on that experience where you were working for the company, making the two, three hundred dollars a day. Tough, no doubt about it. Obviously didn't work out well. Did you learn anything from that experience, which you still carry forward today? Yeah, I mean, for their model to work, it was brutal, but it was very processized. There was a script, say this, do that. Then after, you know, after you had your first 10 dialogues, you started to then manage and manipulate the script to your style. And then, but your f- pure focus was to get that person to, to book that ticket and go to Dubai. And at somewhere in the process, you would then hand over to your manager who would take the credit card details if they did agree to go for a fixed price to Dubai on, on a flight. So I did learn a lot. It was a lot of discipline. So there was no, there, everything was measured. So there was a board with everybody's name on. So you could see yourself constantly how you're doing against everyone else. And so that obviously drove certain behavior because you wanted to be top of that list. You didn't really get a chance to go home until you'd at least done your minimum dials. So, you, I mean, at the time, I couldn't imagine putting that same ethic into a workplace nowadays. But at the time, that was very much it. You can't go anywhere until you've done your job. So it gave me a, a sales discipline and it really helped me deal with rejection because not having had a sales job before, you don't get a lot of rejection working in on the service counter at Mercedes-Benz. I mean, you have a lot of interaction. You have to have really highest levels of customer service all the time. You have to be really aware. But obviously, if, if you're making $200 a day, you're probably going to get 180 nothings. You're probably going to get 10 people rudely tell you where to go. You may have 10 conversations of which five might be decent. But even then, you're probably only going to get one or two 
every month that get on the airplane. That's the level of actual success. So the whole day, maybe have five good conversations. Everything else was horrible or just a dial that goes nowhere. So I think working under that discipline with a management structure where you had to do it was good preparation because I, I think that knowing that that was about as hard as it can get from a pure like sales boiler room style and then taking that into a sales career, it was a, it was a good foundation, even if it was short. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I probably made more calls in three months than a modern day BDR makes in a year in those three months. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a very similar start as well. Grant, I know we got to speak a bit offline about our shared stories and I, I still feel like a lot of those lessons underpin my successes today, right? As you say, the discipline, the drive, the tenacity, it, it, it really builds a certain level of resilience and character in you that never really goes away, but actually I think has been a staple part uh, of what is sometimes necessary for a long-term enduring career. I'm sure we've both seen a lot of people come and go in this space very, very quickly because it's difficult. But ironically, there's always lessons to take from what can seemingly appear to be difficult times. So it's great to see that that was your experience in that regard. Now, before we kind of start moving into other stages of your career, this this Canadian man, as you've labelled him, mm-hmm. just curious how much of that part of your life you put down to to almost luck versus in some way design. Do you look at that and say, well, I, I, I put myself in that position for this next kind of step of my life to happen? Or, or do you just attribute that to just good fortune and luck? I mean, there has to be a massive element of luck to it. I mean, I remember, again, this is the first weekend of doing that job. And leading into that job, I actually interviewed at three different estate agencies and picked one. And I didn't pick the one that was closest to where I lived because there was a lot, lot to differentiate them. I picked the one where my wife's boss, my wife was an estate agent as well, by the way, hence why I thought, well, let's go and do this. He told me that's the one with the best reputation. So I took it on the basis of that. So one took the job, which wasn't the most convenient, but nevertheless, the one that had the best reputation. And then to be the person that answered that phone call, there were three of us in the office at the time. So I had a one in three chance of taking that call. And then being that I had that I had that type of appointment because the reason the outcome was the outcome was because I spent hours with them and obviously built rapport with them both over the course of that day. Now, rapport building was certainly something I got very good at. So the, the general conversation, though, those were lessons from Mercedes-Benz. You know, the, the way you had to interact with somebody, the way to get somebody on side, because you had to earn as much credibility as possible and get the customers on side because you were only delivering bad news in, in the car world. It was only going to be your bill is going to this or do you, you know, do you want to get X, Y, Z done? It was all expense, expense, expense. Like, so trying to make that so it was as pleasurable and as pain free as possible, those skills did definitely translate. So there was definitely a, a load of luck to, to, for it to be me that answered the phone and took that person and have that type of appointment, which lasted hours. But then everything that happened during that appointment and my ability to build a relationship with that person, that's not luck. That was, that was learned. So that was skill. Now I didn't, I wasn't trying to get a job from that guy either, but I guess the lucky bit was meet him in the first place. The thing that was then maybe more destiny was the fact that I'd had this bunch of skills that had come to me during that time too impressive enough to make me an offer. So I guess there's a bit of both. Yeah. Interesting one when you kind of break it down and diagnose it. So now fast forward, you're, you're, you're in this role, right? You're in your, let's say first pure play sales role. Yep. That first year, walk us through it. It was amazing. It was the first time I'd had a job where one, I could work all the time if I wanted to. It was like, here's your laptop, here's your book of business, this is your territory, go for it. But it was 
it was great to be in an office with an, in a team environment, in a SaaS type team environment where the, the, what you had to do was so clear, you know, get this. And it was sending, it's the first time I did a B2B role as well, where now I'm sending to a business. So once I understood what the product did, and I spent a lot of the first couple of weeks of the role, really getting to grips with what the product did, I made sure I could demo that product and understood it inside and out. And I always kept working on my knowledge of the product. I would call product people. I would call our solution sales people. We actually had a team. So the job for the sales role, and I, I was responsible for changing this, was just to get somebody on an appointment where then a sales engineer would then show the product. Now, I found more success and speed to get to my number by being able to do both parts of the job because there was no real skill. It was just somebody someone else's job to know how the product worked. But what I found trying to do those kind of dual calls is they were not, they were communicating functionality, but not value. And so I could take a journey through that product, which was value led in a way that a sales engineer would be more about, this is how it works. This is what it does. This is this button is blue. This button is red. This does X, this does Y. Not it does Y and that's good because it will help you get this outcome. And so because I, I started doing that, my, my results started to really go far away from my colleagues quite quickly. And then Shane, who was then the managing director for that office, was successful. He was actually responsible for the, the European region. Successful in he started to change that mindset across the whole team. So then he made all the salespeople do do the exact same. And then the people that were in solution sales, they became kind of a, a buddy system where they would then become on bigger deals, more involved in a different part of the process. So that was something that I had found was successful. And I, what I, the other thing I would say about that first year is I was working 18 hours a day, not because someone asked me to, but again, I found that if I sent more emails, made more cold calls, sent more cold LinkedIn requests, that I would get a better outcome and have more meetings. And the product was good. And it was, and I always thought about it as, well, how I, I win at this if I don't get outworked by anyone. And I mean, anyone in my office, anyone that I compete with, anyone, no one can work as hard as me. So then it's about, are they going to be as skillful as converting those leads? So I think that that kind of baptism of fire, and by the way, also needing the money. So again, my debt situation hasn't changed. I've just had a job that hasn't worked out. And then I've jumped into this thing. So then having that relationship with a job where, okay, the inputs that you do have a direct relationship to the outcomes. It never has to stop. So I can go home and carry on. My results just went like this versus my peers. I was just committed to it, but I needed the money. So nothing, no one had to ask me to do it. My boss wasn't saying, demanding any of this, but he could see me messaging him at all times of night. What do you think of this email? Is this the right way to communicate that? Like I was always in his inbox and he was always online because he, he was working US hours as well from the UK. So that first year was re a real baptism fire, but I loved it. I loved every second of it. It was the, the, the earning potential was great. The, the business sale, I really enjoyed the fact that you sold this thing that the business used and it wasn't their money. So they didn't have the pain of separating themselves from the money, but they got the value of the product. And then, you know, it was someone else's job to help keep that customer in the renewals team and everything else. But I had no guilt making that call about, you know, this product could really help your business do X, Y, Z. I felt like they just needed to know. And it was my job to get to the, in front of them and, and make sure they knew what we did. And I really loved that. It's, it's amazing how when someone has a, a will to win and a desire and some kind of innate motivation, what can really happen in your life? You know, with, with a recent guest, I was talking about dropping out of university and everyone giving up on me. And then what that led to in my first year, we had another guest talk about sleeping on a blown up bed on the floor and 
not having the money for their shopping even and that that moment how it hit them so hard that they said never again right and then just went out there and crushed it and you listen to your story and it's got that same type of dna there was something in you that was just like a, a burning fire, right? Where you could not be denied. And, and ultimately what that's now led to is pretty remarkable. So I think for the listeners out there, just kind of picking up on that trend, it's really interesting. I think when people look inwardly in themselves and say, what is really driving me here? You know, what's going to get me out of bed, running through walls day in, day out, especially because as we say, this is not an easy space to operate in, but if you want it badly enough, you can go out there and make it happen as your story is a great testament of. Now, you were at this company for quite a long time, right? As almost with all of your roles, there's at least kind of five years uh, tenure across the board. So just walk us through how you were able to start evolving and taking on more responsibility. Was this by design, luck again, Walk us through it. I don't want to put this down to luck. I mean, obviously, I had a great earned relationship with my boss at the time, and and when I when I got into the role, one of the things I he said to me is, "I don't know anyone in the UK. You're the first person I know, and you, there's a real chance here to be my right hand." And I was like, "Okay, cool. Well, you know, I hope if I prove myself and that this company does grow in the way that you're suggesting, because he was telling me about a company that could grow, he's like first people on the ground and we can come X, Y, Z. And he was telling me the story about software companies. I'd never heard of a software company and, and the way they were talking. So I was like, well, I hope if that does, then I'd have the chance to, to do management because at Mercedes, I was a manager. I did have three people reporting to me. I was happy with the responsibility of it. So I made that clear from the off, but I didn't, I never pushed for it. But when the opportunities came, and this is the story throughout my whole career, really. When the opportunity to take more responsibilities came, everybody who was anyone knew I was up for it. So first, I was never scared to put myself up, my hand up for anything like that. And beyond that, always asking my boss if there's anything else I could do. Do you want me to run this meeting for you going forward? Like, is this a good way of you spending your time? I'm happy to do it if you want me to. Or would you like me to show some people what I'm doing in this demo and why I think it's got good conversion rate and then maybe have a call meeting, whatever, and, and do that. So... I was always putting my hand up for this type of thing. And not because I thought it will get me a promotion, but because I've always been of that way. Like I'm a bit of a, like I want to get involved. I want to see if I can help the team. I want to see if we can do better as a team and, and all flourish together. So when the opportunity then came, I'd like to think at least from that behavior, I was, my name was one of the first on the list for somebody that would be considered as an internal candidate. And that kind of followed the whole way through. So at the time, at the end of the first year, it was now take over management of the sales team that we had built in the UK. Then it was, do you want to take over the European team? Then it was, do you want new business and existing business? Then it was, do you want to become a global VP? And that's the story at ZMAGS at least. And, and, and every step, you know, whether it be a year or 18 months in between those promotions, it was always the same thing. Just making sure that my results and the way that I operated made it clear to everyone else that I'm always happy to take more responsibility on if it's offered. And that my motivations were to be successful in the role, not to earn more money. Just to be clear, whenever I was, so even though I needed the money of the job from the commission plan that we had, it was more, I was more interested in being the most successful person in the, in the, in the role I was in. And that's always been the same. I'd like, let's be as successful as this job allows me to be. I didn't think when I was a sales rep doing a 360 sales cycle with a 10K average order value at ZMAG's first, first in that. Like I couldn't see the path to where I am now at all. I wasn't even thinking like that. I was just thinking, I want to maximize everything I can out of this current job to the to the nth degree. Whatever can be achieved, I want to achieve that. 
And that's the kind of thing I've taken into every role. And so naturally as teams expand, and that's the, that's, I guess, the luck of it, because I can't make the company win by myself. But if the company is on an expansion journey and the two comp- the two main companies I work for in my tenure in SAS have been, then it will grow. And as it grows, if you want it, and not everybody should, not every salesperson should want to become a manager, but if you want it and you're picking a growth opportunity, then they, those opportunities will come. And I've been in the right place in the right time. No, I've been the right person at the right time yeah. to give that next step to and give more responsibility to. And I think if you spoke to my mentors and, and managers over the years, they would say, yeah, we were we were thinking six months before we gave you the job that you were going to get this job. Yes, uh, I love the way that you broke that down, Grant. One of the things that you mentioned in all of that, though, is that sometimes for sellers out there, actually, it's not the right job for them. Some people will be listening to this and saying, well, what, well, why, right? Because there's a, a big demand, right, for people to want to take that step up into management. So what is Grant's perspective around, you know, when is the right time? What are the prerequisites to be able to put your hand in the air? So I've said this to a few people that I've given management opportunities to myself over the years, like, are you sure you want this? Because normally the best salespeople are the ones put you under pressure for promotions. Now, the promotion could be that you get a better commission plan. It could be that you have more seniority in your job title. It could be that your base increases. It could be that you're responsible for a more premier set of customers. But most people think it's, I want to be a manager. So then my challenge to them is why? Do you want it because of your ego? Or do you want it because you see a lifelong career in management? Because managing people, especially as the teams get bigger and bigger, and then you end up managing directors yourself who then have teams beneath them, is not the best way to earn money. And it's a surefire way to lose hair and bottom weight, right? That's the reality of it. It's, it's a job that creates way more stress than a successful salesperson who will still be stressed and be working hard, but can kind of, can, can, is in control of more of the equation themselves. So their ability to win and lose is more under their control. The more you take on, as a manager, you're only as good as your weakest person in your team, dragging your, dragging your team down, dragging the motivation of the team down. And managing those personalities and people's wants and needs and desires and own promotion paths and everything else that they want every single day of the week, as well as the sales that you need to step over and make sure that you're exec sponsor for, it's a different beast. And making sure people understand that you probably can earn just as much money as me as a manager and way more it being a top seller and concentrating on being the best seller you can be rather than management. It's just something I remind people before they embark on a career in management. I don't want to stand in their way if that's what they want to do. What I would say is the things that I'm definitely looking for is people that are super selfish and you can normally see those traits. You've probably known in your career, a bunch of lone wolves that do it. They do it. They don't care about anyone else. They only care about themselves. They're not interested in sharing information with anybody else because they don't want to give any of their things that make them successful away. They should never be managers. Yeah. They, you know, uh, the, the people that are trying to bring the team in, like they got a problem to solve it together. Th- those are the people that I'm looking for that kind of, they get something from sharing their story with others is probably going to be, and they've got a, a set of a sense of empathy about them. Those are the think the next core competencies that I'm looking for before giving somebody a management role. If they don't really care about people, got it. Why are you managing? Like, don't do it. You'll just you'll hate it from day one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've now been a manager for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You you got into it relatively quickly from your transition into SaaS, and clearly you love it, right? You've been doing it for a long enough time. So, what? Why do you love managing? You know, big teams. I've always just got way more of a buzz out of seeing us be successful than me be successful. And I know that I can be successful as a, as a kind of almost a, a side effect of 
of the team being successful. So for me, it's about, I think it's also being surrounded by people that are having a good time generally. So if you create that spirit and if you're lucky to work in an organization where everyone's showing up to every, every day and they're loving showing up every day, you can feel the energy. There's a good sense of camaraderie. People know each, things about each other's personal lives. There's relationships outside of work as well as inside of work, creating that atmosphere for what I think will create a successful revenue organization. And it's not just sales. I, I include customer success in this, that we are all in it together. That, that's the biggest buzz for me. It's that sense of family, that sense of belonging. You know, if you're trying to build a big company and you're not into that, then you're probably not really into it at all. You're not trying to build something big. You're just, you're interested in your little piece of it. But, and then it could be other teams. Like I'm interested in what other teams are doing, what support are doing, what finance are doing, like that camaraderie, that building of a, of an atmosphere and my ability to impact a large portion of how that feels has always been for me, one of the biggest driving forces of my motivators when I'm at work, like I get a massive sense of buzz from that. That's awesome. It's awesome. Love the way you shared that. So I know when we spoke before, one of the things that really stood out in my mind was actually sometimes that the opportunities you're willing to give to, I say non-conventional candidates, right? But let me give you an example. If someone's looking for a BDR, they might just look at another SaaS company and try and find a BDR. But you said to me at the time that sometimes you're you're willing to give people their shot because you know that giving someone that opportunity that's maybe out of industry that they're probably going to run through walls from you if you're open to it, it'd be great if you could just share a bit more about your thinking in that area well if you listen to my story i didn't come from SaaS, right now i i got into SaaS at a time where there wasn't much of a SaaS industry right it was small so you were normally looking outside of of SaaS, I mean, maybe you were looking from an on-prem world, like a software world into, into a SaaS world, but I was given an opportunity by somebody off the street and I was given the opportunity because he saw somebody that was good at rapport building, held himself in the conversation well, got the sale. So actually generated the success, but didn't have any of the, any of the C, the things that we ask for people on the CV. Now, when you look at a job posting for a BDR or an AE, you know, that kind of university degree or this, that, the other, or five years of experience didn't need any of those things. It just was a, here you go. I believe in you. I, everything that you have and everything that you're, you're telling me during this conversation tells me that you're ready for this opportunity. So that was my start. Somebody gave me a chance. And I think that's probably underpins my, my feelings on this is that, and, and sometimes I've even pushed people to go for an opportunity in SAS. It's like, no, get in, come over here. I've done the same with my brother. And I've asked, I've moved, I've pushed, pressed him to get involved in a SaaS career because he was in a, he was working in the bathroom industry for years. And I was like, you're never going to get where you think you want to get to stuck in this. You need to get out of this and into something else. So I've pushed people to do it. And the reason I've, I've made that push is because the competencies that make a great salesperson have nothing to do with your university degree. It may have something to do with university. So, but it won't be that you studied, you have a BA in economics you know, that won't really help you that much. Maybe when you have to build a business case and understanding the, you know, the, the, comp the components of that business case, maybe something learned will help. But the main thing that university probably gives you is more of a, you've, you, that's maybe the first time you had a chance to expand your network. And then you had to build a new network with new friends and new people. And that means you had to build rapport and you had to create this, this kind of character for yourself that would then become whatever it is at uni. So those relationships you build at university are much more important probably within a sales career. And that maybe is why people ask for it. But the degree itself is, is, is not valuable to the, to the sales career. It's valuable in a bunch of other vocations. So I'm definitely not denigrating on, on universities and, and stuff like that, but it didn't 
change my outcome. And that's why I've been willing to give people a chance. And some of those examples will be pushing people to go for manager positions when I know that they are the right type of person, but they don't have the self-confidence to do it. Taking people from customer side where I'm like, you're wasted here. And there's a, there's a few people that work at the master's organization now that would, that would tell you that I gave them an opportunity or, or knocked on their door proactively to say, I think you can make a great salesperson, or I think you could be a great sales engineer or come and work in our customer success team. You know, our customers problems, you are our customer, you know, especially if you notice that somebody's just been made redundant from a customer side and they've got that experience using your technology, that experience using your technology and understanding of its value. Wow. Like I'll employ those people all day long if I've got the opening in my team, because who's going to be able to tell the story of the product better and the value it creates than a customer that's used it. So yeah, I've never been scared to give somebody an opportunity and the not obvious person, the right opportunity to come in. And I often find that people that come from aligned of a SaaS jobs sometimes have bad habits. The people that are looking aren't often the most successful people because they're really looking for a reason, right? So it's if we've knocked on their door and happen to be successful, all well and good. If they're proactively applying, they probably don't believe they're getting to the number this year because they believed at some point because they took the job and they, and they like the comp plan. Now they don't believe anymore. Now that could be the company. It could be them. It could be anything, but I don't necessarily believe that your experience selling SaaS is a predictor of an outcome within the sales job that you do within your company. And I think it also depends on the fact that, or the belief that you know that the onboarding that you're going to put that person through is going to get them to a point where they can represent your business. So if you don't believe in your onboarding experience, your training that you're going to deliver, and I, and I did a different talk about this, like everyone you hire, regardless of what they did before, you're going to put them through three to six months of intensive training. This is the pitch deck. This is the first level of it. This is the second level. Of it. This is the product knowledge that you need to know. This is how you run a demo. Here's how you, so you're going to put them through all this training. You're going to shadow them. People are going to shadow your best sales employees on a million different sales opportunities. So if you're going to do that anyway, what difference does the previous experience make? You're going to, they're going to work with your best through the onboarding experience. So concentrate more on building a great onboarding experience and training experience than worrying about whether they've got a 10 year SaaS career. You know, it's different if you have to be a manager, you're going to need to have more operational skill. You don't, or the manager isn't going to have the time typically to learn about SaaS in the way they'll need to, to trans, to translate, but sales jobs, entry level sales jobs, client success, customer success jobs, the, the experience isn't a predictor of a success. And I'd much rather give somebody that's got the core competencies the the job than somebody who doesn't but has so-called experience yeah there was a ton in that and i think the core competencies i would also add on just the concept of their mindset right ultimately because you know when you've got someone and i think through both of our stories in a way uh, we've spoken about that drive that tenacity that willingness to just get after it you know when you've got someone that thinks acts and operates with that mentality combined with the core competencies you potentially got someone who's just unstoppable, you know, forget experience. Yeah. And I've been seeing this time and time again, where people that lack experience, but have, you know, the other two of those things in, in, in spades have just dominated other people that have been quote unquote heavy hitters and people that have come with all of the track record and all of the bells and whistles. So I just think it's continues to be a concept that flies under the radar. And I think it's fantastic that there's great leaders like yourself out there, Grant, who are willing to give people an opportunity 
to let them flourish and maybe that's your kind of secret hidden weapon right out there. It has been on a few pages, <laughs> but let's think about it this way. The only thing you're definitely going to give that individual is the experience because they're going to be working for you. Yeah. But what you can't give them, you can't give them curiosity, you can't give them intellect, you can't give them desire, you can't give them the hard work ethic. Those things you can't give them, but you, you will give them experience by giving them the job. Right. You have to start somewhere, right? And then there's experience will build. So I'm much more interested in those values I've just mentioned and a, and a sense of humility as well, empathy. That Those are the things that make great, you know, performers, individual contributors, eventual leaders. Those are the competencies. That, those are the core culture points and, and values that they have. The experience is something that you get by doing. So no um, doubt about it. And they probably have a bunch of experience that is going to help you from the other jobs they've done, even if they didn't look exactly like the job that you're trying to give them. Absolutely. So Grant, let's fast forward. You had then your your second, let's call it second big run. Arsis, I believe it was, you know, an, another, you know, multi-year run there. So now you, you've got this experience as a global leader. Talk to us about that transition. What was your mindset? What were you looking to achieve in making that that next move? So with ZMAGs or ZMAGs, what really kind of happened is as we took on private equity investment, the growth opportunity was the US market. So I was this leader based in London with a newborn with, I think there were six of us in the London office and then two clients, customer success people. There were another four or five in Denmark, but most of it was the product team in Denmark. And then this burgeoning kind of team in Boston where we had 20 people, then it was 30 people and 40 people. So the balance of my time was just wrong. It was like the leader needs to be in the US. So then effectively it was after speaking with my CEO, it was like, look, it's time to move on or move, but I wasn't moving. So I decided to part ways with Ags and then I had a, you know, a nice long notice period where I could figure out when next move was. So then I started to look around the market. And at the time there were two main opportunities that I got involved with. One was in Marsis and the other one was Optimizely. And it was really the nature of the role that was on offer Optimizely as to why I said no, because Optimizely was the one that had more evidence of success. They were a bigger brand. In Marsis, I'd never heard of until I went for the job interview process, whereas Optimizely was one that already had a good reputation and was well-known in the A-B testing space. But the job at Optimizely, which paid a bit more, was run our enterprise sales team, six people. The job at Marsis was run our revenue for our organization, which was the inside sales team, the solution consultants, the client success team, and the new business team, which was 40 people. And I was like, well, that's the challenge I want. And it's multifaceted across the revenue organization. I like the idea of, I don't really believe you can be a true revenue leader unless you have both strings to your boat. And I definitely had that at, at ZMAGS. So that was the opportunity that I took, even though didn't know the company that well. But when I dug into the product and I spoke to a couple of people that had used it, they said, no, it's a good product. And it also had challenges. They were very open to me in, this, in the interview process about what the challenges were. And I was the first revenue leader they'd hired for the region. Previously, what they had was an MD, but it was a new business leader and a client success leader that were button heads. New business were winning at all costs. And the client success team were there as cleanup merchants, basically saying <laughs> first year was all about repairing relationships with a customer that brought what they thought they brought, they hadn't really bought. So I like the idea of that harmonization between new business and, and existing business. I had seen it work well when you have the whole 360 covered, you're thinking about all aspects of the, of the customer experience, how it starts to work better and the flywheel starts to turn. So I took that role and I mean, I mean the first six months were tough because I didn't know the space. I didn't know the product I had to learn again, 
always went straight to the product. I could do a product demo myself after three months of being there, which my the, the, the person that was running the chief sales office at the time couldn't believe. He told me to do it, but he didn't believe anyone. No one ever did. And I actually went and did it. I was like, no, no, I need to know how this product works if I can sell the value. But my job really was to stop the new, it was to convince the new business sales team that winning at any price and any cost based on the false sense, a set of criteria was not a way to sustain success in a sales career. You might win quick now, but it's short term. You're destroying the reputation of this business. You're, just, you're making client success hard. And actually, if we make their lives easier, we make the customers happier, they tell their friends. And then your lead pool starts growing and your ability to find a reference when you need a reference improves and all these other things. So I was not very popular for the first six months because I kept on refusing deals. I was like, I'm not taking that deal. It's too small or the discount's too high or the, you know, they think, hang on a minute, they think they're buying this, but we don't do that. And I was really quite unpopular. And one of the people I was most unpopular with now is one of my closest friends and somebody that's also risen through the ranks at Emarsis there. But you know, I had to get him to understand what I was doing about, you know, we need to, we need to win as a team and just, just you winning as an individual under this, this set of circumstances isn't sustainable for a long-term career here and, and the brand that we're trying to build. So I started to focus on that, you know, where we're going to find our, our fans, our, our biggest fans in the client base. So who's going to evangelize us and let's start saying no to a couple of deals. Let's, let's hold our value. And it was always like we were competing with Salesforce, Adobe, Oracle, and the customers would always use it against us, right? You know, you're like, you're more expensive than, than Adobe. It's like, but do you think we're better than Adobe? It's like, yeah, we want to buy you. It's like, well, then why would we be cheaper if we're the best? Like we cover more things. We, we have more strings to our bow. We, we, we go into areas that Adobe can't for this particular product. So we're not trying to compete with Adobe. They're trying to compete with us and changing that mindset and making sure that the every salesperson in the team, every solution consultant in the team, and then the client success team had that mindset. No, we're the best. Say it loud, wear it like on your chest. Be really believe that you've got the best piece of technology here. And I really worked on the team's understanding of that notion and then started to hold the value, say no to the discount. Then people started to buy on the basis of what we did, understanding that you didn't need to complete every tick every box in the RFP. It was all about what are the What's the 60%, 70% of the RFP that the customer definitely needs? Let's maximize that. Do we, do we achieve that? If we do, let's go after this, this account. So we started doing bigger deals in, they took a bit longer, probably doubled the time it took to do a deal, but we did more deals for more money. And then the client success team started to win customers who were, they could go straight into growth after six months. And that was not something they'd been used to. They was normally involved in a, how do we do a repair job on this customer? And that was a great foundation for, for building my career within Imarsis, like to getting that right and building that, that kind of view of let's, let's build a business here. Not, let's not just win new, new business deals and new logos. Let's, let's build our business was the foundation of a, of a great career that spanned five, nearly six years with Imarsis until the acquisition happened. And again, everything that was true about ZMags in terms of being at the right place at the right time, because of the way I built my team was the reason I got offered those promotions. I didn't go for any of the jobs that were offered me and anything. I went from running that revenue team to basically being the MD of the region to then taking over Europe, which was their biggest region at 70% of the business to then CRO at every stage. I was asked if I wanted to go for that, for that job and, and take that responsibility on. And it was just, I think that ethic of building the right business, we were generating the biggest results of the biggest growth. So doing it that way, which was slow in the, in the initial phases, but then sped everything up from that point on 
was the key to the success that we had at Emarsis. There's so much gold to take from your story, Grant. I, I feel like there's so many different facets I could I could pull from. You know, one of the things that's standing out in my mind is that decision between Optimizely and Amasis. And actually, that was a really important decision for you and probably not an obvious one to many people because really your decision in, in one capacity was based on skill acquisition, right? The, the remit of responsibility that you had and how that would help you build, grow, and ultimately become a better leader, where actually the other decision may have partly been fueled by a level of ego, right, in terms of the brand recognition, but actually your remit was much smaller, right? The, the skill set that you'd probably develop as a result was also smaller. I think it's a big lesson for people to lean into there. And actually, it's a big part of my own decision, taking the role that I've taken now to lead EMEA for Sales Impact Academy, because there were other opportunities to management roles for enterprise segments or specific segments in a company. But I said, actually, the skill set that you can build by having that complete holistic region under your remit is very, very hard to replicate. And I think the growth that your career has had since is great validation of that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, look, if I'd gone to Optimizely, maybe I'd have also had a great outcome. Who knows, right? You right. don't know. But certainly at the decision at the time, you've got to decide about what it is that you're trying to achieve over a career. And the, obviously, the more you're responsible for, the more power, the more the uh, power is an is a ego word, I think. But it's more you have more ability to shape the nature of your business. If you're just responsible for one thing in a silo, then you'll always be impacted by other silos and you'll always think they should be run better. So the more that you can get under your control, if that indeed does drive your behavior and you're interested in trying to create a, a like a business that lasts, then having those things under your control and under the remit is important. If you're not interested in those things, then don't do it. Take the enterprise sales leadership role. Focus on just being really good there. This is not about money. It's not about success. It's not about that being one being worse than the other. But if you are trying to impact the whole thing, then you need as much of the whole thing as possible under your control in order to do to get the best outcome you possibly can if you back yourself most definitely grant i've got two final questions for you yeah. one of them is when you look ahead now at this point in your career what is it that you want to go on to achieve and why do you want to go on to achieve it so for me the the thing that i want to do now is i want to get i want to get involved at a senior level at something more early stage so the outcome is more transformative for my for my family and everything else over a period of time. So again, I think now it's time. So I've been very successful and I've done things by the numbers, by the book. Now I want to do something that's kind of, that will kind of cr create generational kind of wealth for me, for, for my family over time and be part of something that's really huge, like like a business that could become really big within its space. So that's the, the next big thing for me. And also I want to be more in control of my own destiny. So I just turned 40, as I mentioned to you before. I'd like to think by the time I'm 50, I can choose whether I want to work, how I want to work, what I want to do, rather than being beholden to needing to do those things. So I think those are the personal goals for me, but the kind of the business goals and the things I'm trying to achieve in the business, they haven't changed. They've always been the same. Create a great company, create a great place to work, create a team where everybody knows how to be successful and can be. Those things will continue to guide the kind of the what I want to do in the job, but there's bigger context for what I want to do you know, with the job itself and what I want it to create for me, I think, if that answers the question. Yeah, no, it does. Absolutely. Let us in a little bit there, Grant. Yeah. 
Final question for you. And if you've watched any episodes before, then you know what's coming. But Grant, it's to say, if you were talking to that person out there that wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what would the best piece of advice be that you'd have for them? Find a mentor. Find a mentor or find more than one mentor. It's like, so the thing that I think I've, I've done really, really well is build great relationships with people that have helped me. I have not done this by myself. And so my best advice for someone that's trying to become elite, find out who the best are, build relationships with the best, and they might not be the best at selling. They might be the best person that you could find most helpful in product, most helpful in marketing, most helpful in finance, because all of these people have skills that make you more rounded and better at your job. So don't just focus on delivering the best pitch, focus on understanding and also find client side mentors. That's another thing I would say. So whatever industry that you're in, find customers that can become your friends and would give you the advice, like what's the real impact of this product? How does it make you feel? What would be better about it? What could, and I've got, I've got relationships. I had people at my 40th birthday party that are customers of mine. You know, I've got relationships with, they'll, they'll cut through all the crap and just give it to me straight, like how we can help. So find, find people that will coach you, mentor you and make you more rounded. It ain't just be about being the best at selling. It's about understanding the wider context if you want to be the real best. That's a great way to round off. I hope I can get an invite to the 50th now. <laughs> it was good for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's the yardstick. It should be good. Did you enjoy being here? I really did. Thank you so much, man. Thank Absolutely. You so much. It's great to have you. Thanks so much, Grant. If you got any form of wisdom and value from today's episode, then please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share, and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. And again, if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please take a couple of minutes, leave us a five-star review and help us grow the platform. Again, hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and we'll see you on the next one.